Good to be with you all and look forward to continuing to worship as we open the scriptures together. <clears throat> this morning we're in Matthew chapter 18. You have a Bible and want to follow along the gospel of Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. And we're working our way through uh, this chapter of scripture that relates much to resolving conflict in a godly way. So we've titled this sermon series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture. And if you've been here the last few weeks, then you know that this chapter and this sermon series lays out uh, along the lines of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the plank out of your own eye. Before you speak into the life of your brother or sister in error, you need to speak into your own life and look in the mirror. And so that's what we've done the last few weeks. We've seen how Jesus confronts our arrogance and ambition. He confronts our need to root sin out of our lives. He confronts the lack of a heart we have. He talks about how the Lord's heart is to pursue the one, even despite the 99 still being there. All these different ways he's called us to take the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. But now all of that preparatory work is done, and starting in verse 15, we are actually going to engage our brother or sister in error, and how do we do that? So that's where we are within the context of this chapter and in the sermon series. And where we are today made me think about this really peculiar habit that my wife has right now. Apparently, she's not alone, but um, on the occasion that we get to go out to dinner together, um, doesn't happen too often, but whenever we do, you know, we've got this full menu in front of us, all sorts of things that are served right to us. We don't have to cook. We don't have to clean. We can choose whatever we want. And very often, almost without fault, the last like six to eight months, she somehow finds it in her soul, the desire to want to order Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and apparently this is like a bougie thing to, I don't even know why restaurants have it on their menu. <laughs> this is so bizarre. Um, but, but this is what she wants to do. She, um, she wants to choose this usually unwantable thing. But it made me think a lot about the passage of Scripture that we're in this morning, because it is, in many ways, like eating vegetables. Um, and uh, the truth is that it isn't always fun, it isn't always sweet, it isn't always exciting, but we need it. We need a variety of foods on the food pyramid, and we need the variety of instruction offered in the Scriptures. And sometimes it's exciting things, like we got to study in Mark chapter 3, where we see Jesus in action, and sometimes it's Matthew 18, 15 through 20. These are things that aren't always exciting, but they are things that we need desperately. It could save the soul of our church. So let's read these words, and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. If your brother or sister sends a against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, 
take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If your sinning brother refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hard conversations, honest confrontation, calling someone out. These are situations that very often prove difficult or even daunting for us. I know business leaders who've lost sleep due to the anxiety of having to tell an employee that they were being terminated for poor performance. I know organizational leaders who've literally felt sick to their stomach because they had to confront a staff member's moral failure. I know coaches of sports teams who were heartbroken to have to share the news with one of their players that they were being dismissed from the team for disciplinary issues. Several years ago, I was leading a ministry team, and when I took leadership of the ministry, before we started, each of the team members, we covenanted together, making certain commitments to the ministry and to one another. And one of these commitments is that we would seek to walk in holiness. We would seek to live in integrity according to God's word. And several months into leading this team, it then came to my attention that one of our leaders was regularly, publicly abusing alcohol and that they were also regularly sleeping with their significant other who he was not married to. And when I found this out, there was a swirl of emotions that filled me, anger because I felt betrayed, sadness because I loved my friend, and dread because I knew I had a hard conversation to have. But of all these emotions that I felt, for sure, joy was not one of them. So confrontation like this very often proves difficult and daunting, but it is also extremely Necessary because the truth we receive from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, is that God's people confront one another's sin. Now, there is a certain way we are to do it, and there is a certain spirit with which we are to do it, but make no mistake, we must do it. Another way to say it is that spiritual growth is a community project. We live in what sociologists call a very individualistic culture. And this is the opposite of a collectivist culture. In individualist cultures, people find meaning and purpose and identity with reference to themselves, with reference to the individual. Whereas in collectivist cultures, people find meaning and purpose and identity with reference to the broader community. And in America, we are off the charts on the individualism scale. 
And one of the ways this plays out is in our spiritual and religious practices. So for us, our default perspective is to see spiritual growth primarily as an individual project overseen and operated and determined by you, the individual, without reference from outsiders. But in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, and in the many other scriptures that we'll look at today, we see that spiritual growth is a community project wherein God's people confront one another's sin. So in light of the need for us to confront and be confronted by one another, I want to share seven, count them, seven biblical truths about confronting one another in the church. This is going to take me two hands to hold up all these points. First, confrontation is about sin, not preferences. The Lord will teach us confrontation is about sin, not preferences. So look back at Matthew 18, verse 15, our first verse in the passage today. Jesus says to his disciples, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So Jesus' instructions here relate to a situation in which a fellow or brother or sister in the Lord has sinned. And sin is breaking God's commands. When God has said not to do something and we do it, well, then we've sinned. In those situations, we are to confront one another. And to contrast sin with other kinds of issues, I'm bringing back a fan favorite and showing off some of my detailed work on Microsoft Paint. (laughs) Can you believe this software still exists? Can't believe they haven't updated it with something at least a different name. But Microsoft Paint, there it is. So notice these concentric circles. And the more you move inward on the circle, the more severe the situation. The more you move outward on the circle, the less severe the situation. So let's start on the outside of the circle and move in. So the least severe dispute you may have with a brother in Christ is what I'm calling a matter of preference. So, for example, do you know at this church, in this room, right now, we have both Michigan fans and Michigan State fans, even Ohio State fans, right? (laughs) Now, do I prefer my brothers and sisters to pull for my team? Yeah, that's my preference because the other team's fans are obnoxious and arrogant. But if I'm honest, I can't even say that it's my opinion that my team is best because how, you do, how do you really determine that? I simply prefer my team over the others. Another example of preference may be a certain song selection in a worship service. There may be a certain song that you just don't jive with. It's not that the lyrics are bad or they have bad theology in them. You just don't like the song. You don't prefer the song. If that happens, it's okay. No need to confront anybody about it. It's just a matter of preference. Now, moving in a little more are matters of opinion, what I'm calling matters of opinion. These are able to be a little more substantiated than preferences. I can't really substantiate Michigan over Michigan State. I can't really give any reasons why I don't like this song. I just don't. But opinions can have a little more weight to them. For example... When I was serving as the campus pastor of Woodside Lapeer, 
our associate pastor was a brother named Gary. And Gary was under the opinion that coffee is coffee. And there really is no difference in the quality of different coffees. And he happened to oversee our Sunday morning connect ministry, which included our coffee service. And since all coffees are the same, the logical thing to do is buy the cheapest coffee. So he went to Costco and he bought Kirkland's signature brew in bulk. Now, I actually didn't mind the Costco coffee, but I must say it did kind of have an aroma that reminded me of an ashtray. Not sure that how that happened. You just had to swallow quick and you were fine, but his opinion was save the church's money, buy the cheapest coffee. But pretty much everybody else's opinion was, Gary, I will donate more money to the church, just buy better coffee. But it's not like Gary was sinning, forcing everybody to drink bad coffee, and he didn't think everybody else was sinning by wanting to spend a little more money. It was simply a clash of opinions. But moving in a little more inward are what I'm calling matters of wisdom. These are issues that, like opinions, can be substantiated, but they're a little more serious in nature. For example, how you vote in political elections. That's a matter of wisdom. This is a decision that's more serious than what kind of coffee we drink, but it's also, I don't think, a matter of sin. If someone votes differently than I do, there may be a wiser or less wise choice on the ballot, but I don't think that I can say my brother is necessarily sinning if he votes differently than me. Another example of a matter of wisdom that many parents are facing these days, when do you let your kid have a cell phone? So my fourth grade son has a classmate who have phones, but I also know high schoolers whose parents have not yet allowed them to have a phone. Now, is this a matter of sin and righteousness? If you give your kid a cell phone too early or you don't give him one too late, I don't think so. It's a matter of wisdom. So I'm not going to confront my brother in the Lord because he got his kid a cell phone earlier than I did mine. We may have a good conversation about it, I may share my concerns, but I'm not likely to intentionally confront him in the way Jesus is talking about here. Instead, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between the two of you. So when my ministry team member was regularly, openly abusing alcohol and sleeping with their partner, there was no question about it. It's not just my preference that you don't do these things. It's not simply my opinion that you don't do these things. It's not only a matter of wisdom that you don't do these things. It's clearly sinful that you are doing these things that explicitly go against God's design for our lives laid out in his word. So this was something that had to be confronted. But on the other hand, if we're having confrontational conversations over things that shouldn't be confronted, like preferences, opinions, matters of wisdom, if we're confronting over every little thing, then we're going to have a hostile, high-strung, combative culture in this church. That's my concern. That's why I bring this up. If we're having confrontational conversations over things that shouldn't be confronted, like preferences, opinions, and matters of wisdom, if we're confronting over every little thing, then we're going to have a high-strung, hostile, combative culture at this church. So the first point Jesus makes about confrontation is that it's about sin. 
not preferences or anything else. Secondly, I have to emphasize, confrontation takes courage. Confrontation takes courage. Again, going back to verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you. That phrase, tell him his fault, is really one word in Greek, and it's a word that relates to reproving or rebuking or calling someone out, telling them they're at fault. So these are strong words. Jesus doesn't say, go and give him a pep talk. Doesn't say, go and encourage him. No, he says, tell him his fault, rebuke him, lay it out. So to speak this way takes strength, it takes courage, because there can be a tendency, you know, to just sort of sweep things under the rug. Hey, I know my brother is sleeping with his girlfriend, but it's a personal choice. I know my sister is drinking too much, but I can't say anything. You see, there's a passivity there. There's a lack of responsibility for our brother or sister. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, Solomon writes, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. So Solomon seems to be addressing the possibility that I might discern sin in my brother's life, but I don't say anything to him in the name of love. Oh, I don't want to upset things. I don't want to make him feel bad. So I'll just hide what I know about his sin in the name of love. Solomon says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Courageously, honestly opening up with your rebuke about sin is better than just keeping the peace and hiding what you know. One more is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. This is God giving instruction to his Old Testament people for handling situations of sin. And he says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So the Lord says, reason frankly with your neighbor. Speak honestly with your neighbor about their sin. Otherwise, you're incurring judgment for yourself. You're sharing in your brother's sin if you don't confront it. And again, this frank reasoning, this open rebuke requires courage. These are hard conversations to step into. Over the last several years, I've interviewed numerous candidates for ministry staff positions or internships and residencies. And when I ask these candidates about their weaknesses or ways they need to grow, often they'll say something like, oh, I really struggle with confrontation. I really struggle with hard conversations in ministry. And part of me always thinks like, isn't that everybody? I mean, who enjoys calling people out? Who enjoys openly naming people's sin? There are, there's a word for those people who enjoy those type of things. They're called psychopaths. <laughs> but for the rest of us who have like any semblance of a heart, these are hard conversations. And they require courage. Confrontation takes courage. Third, on the flip side, confrontation requires grace requires grace. Yes, as Jesus said to do, we tell our brother or sister their sin honestly, directly, courageously, but we do so graciously, humbly. 
In Galatians chapter 6, the apostle Paul is writing to the church. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness. So this is a delicate thing. To rebuke someone's sin, to call them out for their transgression with a gentle spirit. It's a tricky combination of strong words spoken with a soft spirit. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, the apostles writing to the church, he's given them direction for how they are to grow together as a unified body. And he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So this is how a church matures when its members are speaking truth into one another's lives, including truth about one another's sin, but this truth-telling is to be done lovingly. Speaking the truth in love to one another makes us able to grow. But apparently it's possible to tell someone the truth, but it not be done in love. It's possible to call someone out for their sin, but to have bitterness or hostility in your heart towards them. The apostle says that misses the mark. Confrontation requires grace, gentleness, and love. Another proverb that I think captures this truth beautifully, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15, Solomon says, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. So Solomon is talking about trying to persuade someone, and certainly when we confront someone in their sin, we are trying to persuade them, but he says persuasion is accomplished with patience. Persuasion is not accomplished with rage and aggressive aggression and impulsively lashing out at someone. He says that a soft tongue will break a bone. So even though we are speaking hard truth to persuade them to repent, there's still to be a softness to our demeanor, a gentleness in our spirit. So to review, confrontation is about sin. It takes courage. It takes grace. Fourthly, Jesus teaches that confrontation begins privately. Confrontation begins privately. So again, back to Matthew 18, 15. Jesus starts out his instruction on this topic. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So Jesus says that the confrontation process starts in a one-to-one -one format. And this is the opposite of what often happens, right? Someone hurts me, someone sins, and I tell everyone else. I complain to my other friends about them. I make passive-aggressive posts on social media about them. It's like we talk to everybody else about them except for the person we actually have an issue with. Far too often, I'll have someone in the church come to me to share their grievance about a fellow church member. They did this, they said that, they hurt me, they acted sinfully. And so I'll ask, well, have you had a conversation with them? Have you had an open, honest conversation about your concerns, about your feelings? And far too often, the answer is no. Instead, it's clear they want me to do something about it. 
And I'll often say, well, I'll offer you counsel. But I think that God has put you in this person's life, not by accident. And Jesus instructs us in these situations first to have a one-on-one conversation with the person in question. In Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is describing a situation in which the Apostle Peter was unfairly treating Gentile believers and favoring Jewish believers in a certain way. And Paul says what he does when he saw this happening. This is Galatians 2 verse 11. Paul says, when Cephas, and Cephas is another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul says, I confronted Peter face to face when he acted in a condemnable manner. When he sinned showing favoritism, I opposed him to his face. I didn't text him about it. I didn't tweet about it. I went to a man to man. And Jesus says that if our brother listens to us, if this one-on-one conversation, he acknowledges his sin and repents, he says we've gained our brother. We've won them over. But if he doesn't, that's when we get to our next point, confrontation begins privately, but it becomes, over time, increasingly public. Confrontation becomes increasingly public. If there's no repentance from the person we're confronting, then the confrontation becomes increasingly public. Look at verse 16 from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, but if your sinning brother doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now the circle of those involved in the situation, it grows. It was a one-to-one conversation, but now there's three, maybe four people involved. And Jesus says that by having a couple of more people go with you to confront someone, then it helps to establish the facts of the case. And the hope is that with the truth of the matter clarified and with the added voices of those you bring with you, that your sinning brother will be more likely to own their sin and repent. Now, this is where our pastor elders do often get involved quite regularly. There's a situation where a member of our church is privately confronted because they're living in sin and error, but that conversation does not go well, so the offended party will come to me or one of our other pastor elders and say, hey, help me go to the second step of Matthew 18. And I want to invite you to do that if you're in a situation like Jesus is describing. It doesn't have to be a pastor elder who goes with you, but very often that's a good idea. And gratefully, I have seen in these group conversations, cheating spouses repent at this second stage. I've seen hurtful words apologized for at this second stage. I've seen gossip repented of and confessed in these group conversations. The private one-in-one conversation begins the process, but secondly, if necessary, Jesus says, take two or three with you. But, he continues in verse 17, If the sinning brother refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
So you see, once again, the confrontation has become increasingly public. It was one-to-one, then it was a group of three-to-four, but now it's the whole church. And the hope is that if there's a communal effort to pray for and to persuade a sinning member, then hopefully it will help that person's willingness to acknowledge their sin and turn from it. Now, at Woodside, this part about telling the church is usually reserved to the level of a member's life group and the pastor elders at that campus. So we aren't up here on a Sunday morning publicly sharing these cases of a wayward member. Again, that's usually left to the level of a person's life group and our pastor elders, unless the wayward member is himself a pastor elder. And this is what the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. There, Paul writes, do not admit a charge of sin. Do not admit a charge of sin against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's talking about a situation when a pastor elder is accused of sin, and he gives them the same rule that Jesus gave in Matthew 18, that there are to be two or three witnesses. Then Paul continues in verse 20. He says, as for the pastor elder who persists in sin rebuke them in the presence of all. In other words, like Jesus said, tell it to the church. And we have done this. Gratefully, it doesn't happen that often. But when a brother who's been ordained and is publicly ministering God's word then starts living in unrepentant sin, we have shared that publicly and given them opportunity to publicly confess and repent. But again, this process is not fail-proof. And sometimes even when we faithfully walk through this path of confrontation that Jesus lays out, still sometimes the person we're confronting does not respond favorably, continues to live in sin. So this sixth truth we see is that confrontation comes to an end. Confrontation eventually does come to an end. After the one-to-one confrontation, after the group confrontation, after the church is involved, if the person still won't repent, then confrontation does come to an end. In the second half of verse 17, Jesus says, if your sinning brother refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So a Gentile is a non-Jew, someone who is outside of the covenant community of God's people. And a tax collector is a Jew who's betrayed his countrymen by working for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes in Israel, then delivering them to Rome. So in both of these cases, a Gentile and a tax collector, Jesus is talking about people who are not part of the covenant community, or they have abandoned the covenant community. And Jesus says, for your unrepentant brother or sister, treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. In other words, they're acting like unbelievers. Treat them like unbelievers. By not repenting of their sin, they're acting like unbelievers, so treat them like unbelievers. This is a little different context, but in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is instructing his disciples before he sends them out to share the gospel. And he tells them that if you get to a town 
and share the gospel with them, and they fully reject it, then, quote, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. In other words, as missionaries, they were not to just sit and stay forever and beg and plead for people to believe the gospel. No, after being rejected, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And there's a similar response when our brother or sister refuses to repent of their sin. The begging and pleading and pursuing eventually have to come to an end, and you leave them to their own devices. You love them, you pray for them, but... Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, don't throw your pearls before swine. It's a similar idea. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians is addressing a situation that fits this category. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm so encouraged by the Corinthian church because no matter how bad it gets here, it can't get worse than Corinth. So I'm often encouraged by the crazy stuff that happens amongst us. This is nothing compared to those pagans. Sheesh, we're way better Christians than them. <laughs> Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, a kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So that's the issue of sin in the Corinthian church, a particularly disturbing case of sexual immorality in which a man is partnering sexually with his stepmom. And then Paul says in verse 2, you are arrogant about this. Ought you not rather to mourn? In other words, he says, you guys shouldn't be proud of this kind of behavior. You should mourn over it. And then he concludes... Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, the person who is living in sexual immorality like this should not be among your membership, certainly should not be among your leadership. They're acting like an unbeliever. Treat them like an unbeliever. So confrontation starts privately, it becomes increasingly public, but it eventually comes to an end, either with that person repenting of their sin or you treating them like a Gentile or tax collector. And then finally, perhaps because all of this seems a little daunting, Jesus is going to affirm that confrontation is carried out by the authority and presence of Christ himself. Confrontation in the church is carried out with the authority and presence of Christ himself. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus says there's a correspondence between what happens on earth and what happens in heaven. In these situations where the decision is made to treat an unrepentant brother like a Gentile or tax collector, Jesus says you're acting with the authority of heaven. What you are doing on earth, disciplining your sinning brother, is reflected in what's happening in heaven. And on the one hand, this should encourage us it should encourage us to take this step if we must take this step because Jesus has given us the authority to take this step. 
But on the other hand, this should greatly humble us that such authority has been placed in the hands of the church. Verse 19, Jesus continues along this line of thought. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus makes this statement about prayer in the context of needing to determine when and how to treat an unbelieving brother, unrepentant brother like a tax collector or a Gentile. He says, when you pray, when you ask for discernment and wisdom in these matters, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. So again, there's an assurance that when we're taking this difficult step of church discipline, the Lord is with us. The Lord is guiding us in this process. I don't know if you've ever seen a police academy graduation, but it can be a powerful ceremony. These freshly minted law enforcement officers, they are ceremoniously, very intentionally given authority to act on behalf of the state to enforce the laws of the land. And they're given these symbols that speak to their authority, a badge and a uniform. Well, Jesus' words here confer to the believing community the authority to speak on behalf of heaven. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you ask on earth is answered in heaven. Jesus' heavenly presence is with you on earth. And so we have the authority to call sin out in one another's lives and to, when necessary, discipline one another when repentance isn't walked out. Do we do this perfectly? Not at all. Just like police officers don't always get it right, but that doesn't mean we don't, under God, do the best we can and walk through this process of confronting sin in the church that Jesus lays out here. You know, in this passage, Jesus talks a lot about our part in the process of confrontation. And so that's a big part of my heart this morning, is to call us to embrace this responsibility as a church, just like we can't neglect our Brussels sprouts. We can't neglect and remain passive about this aspect of church life. We must embrace the responsibility. However, despite our need to take action, we also know that effective confrontation and genuine repentance never occur apart from the power of God. And so I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to close our service with prayer. I'll lead us in prayer, and then in the final song we're going to sing, it also, from start to finish, is a prayer. It's a prayer for God to pour out his spirit in the church. It's a prayer for God to refine us as a people. It's a prayer for God to unify us, not around our preferences, not around our opinions. It's a prayer for God to unify us around his son. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we're honest with you this morning that this is not the most exciting passage of Scripture. But we also believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for your people. And so I pray, God, that we would, as a church, profit from sacred Scripture. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out in us such that we might speak with boldness and clarity when it comes to matters of sin. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out so that we as a church would speak with respect and gentleness when it comes to confronting sin. God, your church is the bride of Christ. We are a holy nation. We are meant to be without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. We are your pure bride. We are a holy nation meant to be set apart from sin to God. And so would you purify us as your bride? Would you sanctify us as a people? Even as we speak into one another's lives, 